I'm about to mansplain this experience to you with my bass. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the only podcast that counts rock stars as animals in need of conservation, the Rossafari Podcast. Y'all, today is a very special day. You may have noticed, uh, if you get this when it came out, that this is Monday, not my usual Tuesday and Thursday release. That's because today we are doing a bonus episode. Yesterday, I sat down for over two and a half hours with members of an incredible band that I have fallen in love with lately, Sammy Ray and the Friends. Now, Sammy Ray and the Friends recently released their new EP, Let's Throw a Party, and y'all, it is a straight-up banger. I love everything about it. So when the opportunity came to sit down and talk to some members of the band, I simply had to take it. Um, for all of you Rasafari fans that are listening to this might be a little confused right now. That's okay. We're, we're here to talk about music today. But don't worry. We talk about conservation. We talk about environmental sustainability, all kinds of good stuff. Oh, and we talk about Sammy's frog, who you are going to fall in love with. And for those of you who are here because you're fans of Sammy Ray and the Friends and have never checked out Raw Safari before, welcome. I'm excited to have you here. Maybe consider uh, hitting that subscribe button and checking out some of the regular episodes as well. This is a podcast all about animal conservation, zoos, and all the good stuff that goes on in them. And don't worry, we're talking the good zoos here. You'll hear a little bit more about this in the episode, but let's just say that there are no Tiger King fans on this podcast. What there is on this podcast is a uh, really cool exclusive bit of information about something you can expect from Sammy Ray and the Friends coming out in the near future. That's right, we just got an EP, but we're already getting something else that's really cool. Just a quick heads up for y'all, um, this one has some language in it. Not too much, but it's it's got some pretty naughty words for those that aren't used to that, so uh, just a heads up. Hey, what can I say? We're rock stars, y'all. So without further ado, get ready to hear from JQ... Seabass and Sammy of Sammy Ray and the Friends. All right, so hello everybody. How's it going? Hello. Hey, John. Hello. So right off the bat, I love that we are delayed for the most Rasafari reason ever. Sammy Ray, why are we late right now? We are late because I have a pet, a pet white tree frog. His name is Fruit. He's the light of my life, and he sustains himself on a diet of only large crickets. And I went to see my boy in Bushwick, who always has <laughs> me with those crickets, but they shout were very him out, small. Shout him, out. This, shout him out, Sam. They were very. This is Felix at Pet Envy nice. get, in Bushwick. Get at it. And Local they were businesses. a little bit too small. They were too small, so I had to go all the way to PetSmart on Atlantic and pick up the large boys. And I came back, I put fruits, vitamins on the crickets, shook them up, dumped them in there, 
and now I'm here. I love it. I love it. I love that for all the reasons to be late. It's an animal thing for this podcast. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. I had to go purchase smaller animals to feed to my slightly larger animal. Hey, man. Circle of life. You know, that's how it works. Yeah, I know. I'm numb to it. I don't feel bad at this point anymore. I used to feel really bad. About Crickets it. are kind of jerks, so don't feel too bad about it. You know. Oh, yeah, I saw they Pinocchio. Are. Come on. <laughs> hey, you're right. You're right. Valid. All right. I guess there are some good ones out there. But, there's, uh... there's one. There's exactly <laughs> one good cricket. Yeah. All right. So why don't you guys all introduce yourselves, and we'll get this. Uh, let people know who I'm talking to right now. I'm Seabass. I am from Virginia Beach. Chabra. Hey. And I play drums with Sammy Ray and the Friends. And just in my stew, recording drums during the pandemic for whoever needs drums. That's what I do. Wow. A plug. (laughs) A plug, man. Uh, I am James Quinlan, a.k.a. JQ. I am the bassist and music director with Sam's band. And uh, I met John... Almost exactly a year and a half, a year ago, and in one month, when we were on tour doing the Charlie Brown Christmas musical national tour, you know, so uh, we played uh, what like fifty five cities or something in a month. It was insane, um, <laughs> and uh, you might recognize John as the role of Shermie. He'll, 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 you know, he's he studied long and hard for that one. It's what uh, I'm known I, for in life. Yes, uh, that's first on the business card. I was in the role of Pigpen, so. <laughs> Shout out to my dirty boys out there. <laughs> hey. <laughs> uh, I am Sammy. I am the songwriter and front person of Sammy Ray and the Friends. We're an eight-person band in Brooklyn. I am also the proud mother of Fruit, the light of my life. He is a roughly five years old white tree frog. And those are really the only two things on my business card. Hey, <laughs> What more do you need? Plant hey, mama. Really. <laughs> yeah, you are a plant mama too. I am a plant mama for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I got to tell you guys, I'm going to fan out for a minute here. Um, I don't find a lot of new music that I obsess over. There's a lot of great stuff coming out always, but I find that um, uh, sim- similarly, I'm doing a lot of pandemic recordings on my drums, you know, here right now. And between working on that stuff and when I'm out on the road and stuff in the, the normal world, um, yeah, I don't have a lot of time to to spend on new music. I find that when I am not working, I like to listen to comfortable stuff and stuff that, you know, doesn't make me think and that I already know and love. And give me some Miles Davis and, and the Beatles and, you know, all that mm-hmm. good stuff. Um, I only checked out the band because, you know, James and I are buds and he was talking about it. And um, mm-hmm. guys, I'm obsessed. I cannot stop listening. Thank you. Thank you. And that's why I wanted yes. to do this podcast. I'm just a nerdy fan who wanted to meet y'all, basically. And so <laughs> I was like, ooh, I can use my podcast to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so it's, I just, it's I kind of funny, man. I, I, was, I was just reflecting on it because while we were in dress rehearsal for Charlie Brown, I, we had like our four-day tour of the Northeast <laughs> where we played at the Sinclair and we played at LPR. And uh, it was, like, right in the middle of the dress rehearsal. And um, I, I kind of had this, like, double life. I didn't really want to tell anybody that what I was actually doing because everybody was really mad that I wasn't going to dress rehearsal. But uh, we had, like, one of the craziest shows of our entire uh, existence in Boston. Pretty much two, two of the craziest oh, shows LPR, of our entire yeah, existence. Exactly. 
And um, so I, I felt uh, felt like I was playing hooky, which was which was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, dude. And I remember. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when we first met. And you know, it's always weird in in theater. You're meeting mm-hmm. new people and playing with them, and it's like, oh. This is your bass player now. I don't know who you are. I don't know how you play. It's that, that weird thing. We're thrown together in a small room one day. And yeah. um, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm the bass player and music director for this band, Sammy Ray and the Friends. And I was like, cool. And it just meant nothing cool to me at the time. Bro. Like, oh, cool great. Story, He's in a yeah. band. Yay. And now I'm like, oh, my God. Best band ever. So, you know. Hey. Yeah. Oh, these are all really kind words. Thank you. I mean you, it though. I mean, oh my gosh, what you guys do is just awesome. And and I definitely want to get into your process a little bit here. Um, so I'm I'm really curious about uh so Sammy, you write the songs. How do you write? Hmm. Uh lyrics first, usually. Uh almost exclusively. I will have some sort of um lyrical idea and then see where that takes me in terms of the shape the tune is gonna take and then run from there and then I've pretty much got all these lyrics and the form is there and the chords are just about there, the horn lines are just about there, the groove is just about there, but then we take it into the space with the whole band and James is offering brilliant things to um, adjust the chords, make it funkier. Will lead our guitarist is doing the same thing. Seabass and I have a kind of, I don't know, a good understanding of this is kind of what the groove is. And I hear Seabass playing in my head and then he's able to play it. Um, so I do write the lyrics and kind of the song structure. And then it really comes to life when when the whole band gets together and offers their particular brand of magic. Um to it. So it is uh, very much a collaboration in that way. Nice. And yeah, I think something that's unique about our project too is our songs do kind of come to life when the band gets in the room, but they don't really fully come to life until we've like given them to the fans because the live show is such a huge aspect of what we do. Um, And we're constantly finding little like fills and licks and spots to add interesting things as influenced by the energy that we're getting from the audience when we're in that live setting and and the songs really evolve as we continue to tour them and um get feedback from the fan base so i think that's pretty unique to us is that we have such like a hardcore show that's just so energetic that the the songs are kind of growing all the time that's awesome what does that do for you guys when you're um doing something like you guys did the uh, the amazing live thing the other night for Pace Magazine. Um, and I was there cheering on my couch and uh, I loved it. <laughs> um, but what does that do when you have like a, you know, I think there were maybe five people in the audience, you know? There's there's like three. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to overestimate. <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's good. I mean, we've had to readjust, obviously, in the last year. We consider ourselves very lucky to be a project that has had opportunities to perform in a streaming sense. We had a show in streamed from Destin, Florida in uh, October. We had an outdoor show in October in, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And then we had this pace thing that came up last minute. And we've done a couple other streams, which isn't performing, but just being connected to the fans. But I think while that is such a huge part of what fulfills us, we're also deeply fulfilled just by being in the same room and making music together. And we found out about this Pace Magazine thing the morning before it was supposed to happen. And we like rushed to get a rehearsal together and we're, you know, doing the thing that we always do, but I don't think it clicked to everybody until we were in the middle of like that shed that we hadn't done it in a really long time. And that's a really special thing. So even though there weren't folks in the audience, when we were able to perform for Pace on an actual stage, 
it only gave us more space to be present with each other and engage in like eye contact and sharing energy and, and that kind of thing. I don't know. Seabass and, and JQ, how do you feel about, I feel about that. Cause it's, it's, a, it's, it's like a special thing when the audience is there, it's an enormous thing, but it doesn't. And it's hugely like distinct to our project that it's so energetic and they give so much. I don't know what they do before the show, but they jump up and down for two hours, but it doesn't somehow detract from the joy that we source from just being on stage together. Well, I mean, I, I really think that, you know, we, we have spent so long working the songs and more recent, well, before the pandemic playing the songs live. And, uh, you know, we got this show really tight. Like I hate to say it, but that yeah. show was really tight. Like we, um, you know, we managed to get all the arrangements and the segues and, and the audience participation was just really, really good. So to put a, like an absolute pause on that for, I mean, it, at first it was like seven months, you know, before the Georgia and the, and the, and the, um, the Destin show, you know, but it just, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, speaking personally, like in that moment where we have that rehearsal and we play these songs that we know, all know so well in the band and we are really, we've all invested and have our own special moments with these songs. It's just, I, I was, I was so excited to be just even playing the music in just rehearsal and just being on that stage and playing that like, you know, and, and also, I mean, the fact that we had an audience, even though they weren't physically there was really special. You know, it just, it, mm-hmm. it, it was so exciting for me to, play these songs that that we have really uh kind of developed i mean you know and and it was just just such an amazing feeling to it's like uh it's like a family reunion in a way you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I i just get excited to play in general <laughs> like any chance i get to play like even before the pandemic i i love i love doing it and i feel like the, everyone in the band is it, it feels the same way and so, like, to have... I think that's what really is the special part about this band is everyone loves to play. So, like, even, I mean, the, the audience definitely hypes us for sure. It definitely makes mm-hmm. us energetic. But, like, we're already at 100%, like, when we get on stage together, even with an empty, yeah. even with an empty room. But the second that, you know, we get audience, you know, that it's just, it's just supplemental. You know what I'm saying? So we, we just love doing it. It's just so fun. I, I always say that we're like kind of like the allegiance, like an allegiance of musicians and an allegiance <laughs> that is just so positive, optimistic, loves to play music and uh, loves to spread joy. I think every single every single one of us has a way to light up a room. And it's cool because we do the same thing, but we do it in a different way. We light up the room in a different way, each and every single one of us. So mm-hmm. I love no, I, that I, about this. I, I also wanted to mention, you know, as you're talking about like how the songs are shaped and all this, I mean, um, it's, it's happened with a few of the songs where there's the recorded version that, you know, I always say it's like the, these, these recordings, any recording is just a photograph. It's a musical photograph of what that day, what the song sounded like on that day or that, that week. And, um, you know, for these songs, they really take on another life of their own as we play them live and as they develop. Um, I take uh, a song like The Box is a perfect example where it started out as this kind of folksy, you know, kind of cool little sing-along. And it has turned into this completely 
like emotionally filled like moment in the in the live show. It's one of my favorite moments, and and one of those. I mean, that song would not be the same without an audience. You know, that's why we haven't really played mm-hmm. it in a while. But you know, I I just I have I, I that that song really kind of developed into its own thing, and um, it's because we had this time on the road to uh, to and allowed allowed the song. We all we all were uh, kind of open enough to allow the song to do what it wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I love that. I always look for those opportunities. I was on the national tour of a show uh, called A Night with Janis Joplin doing a bunch mm-hmm. of Joplin's music. And we had such a tight band. Um, and the director let us have such freedom that we would do the same thing. We would experiment. There was one night that I was just feeling things were just extra quiet on stage at one point, And I dropped out on the drums. And um, you can't drop out as a drummer unless you That's really sick. trust what's going on <laughs> with you the know? click track and everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was a whole thing, but I just, I pulled out for just a couple of uh, measures and then slammed back in when things started getting louder and it became a milestone of the rest of that tour. And, but it was Amazing. only because sick. I trusted everyone on that stage to not turn around and go, Oh gosh, the drums, ah, you know, because <laughs> we've all had those moments yeah. on stage too, where something happens and everyone panics, you know? It, it, yeah, for sure. Have a good oh yeah. Um, oh, that's awesome. I mean, I, I will not lie. I, uh, I was sitting watching that and, and um, there was a point where, uh, man, uh, I think it was Seabass. You played just some sick thing. Like, like you do, it's, it's what you do. And James, you <laughs> turned and like, lost it like you were so excited your eyes got so big and i I suddenly realized that i had tears in my eyes and i just very quiently just went i miss performing like it it literally hit me so hard i mean it was a beautiful moment but um i'm just so glad that that you guys are getting this kind of thing and yeah Yeah. the remote recording stuff and everything it's fun and it's awesome and it's it's relatively fulfilling ish but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I miss being Heard. together and, and Man, I miss yeah. that's doing. honestly that that's something that we've talked about, especially with like the last the, the really fortunate opportunities we've had to play live together, which is very rare uh, in just the entire musical ecosystem that we have right now. And so, yeah, we I mean, we all have friends who have, you know, no, no knock. You know, it's like people just are looking for where the income is. And a lot of people who are changing changing careers and a lot of bands that don't exist anymore. It's just the reality of it. So we, we are very conscious that when we go out on stage, we're doing it for us. We're doing it for them. We're doing it for we're doing it for everybody who is is unable to, or I mean, you know, it's it, it just means so much more to to be able to have this amazing opportunity to play. Uh and of course, I would have to stress it's it's in a um it's in a safe, you know, uh, precautioned environment for the for COVID too. We 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 are very very careful with that. I, I just want to mention that. But you know, um, every every chance that we get, it's it's just it means so much more. You know, I we all we all have friends that that um, that you know. I mean, John, it's just so special to hear that. You know, um, I mean, we'll all we'll all be out there soon enough. Is the truth? You Absolutely. Know? And and it's going to feel that's, so good. Oh my god! Yeah, it's it's like I just I just can't wait to play a wedding and play "Don't Stop Believing." I don't know. It's like <laughs> I've been waiting. <laughs> I, I, I might, be able, yeah. I might <laughs> be able to wait. I might be able to wait. Yeah, I, I'm gonna go see somebody play at Rockwood One, and I'm gonna never be seen again. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we talked a little bit about how you write the songs, um, but you know, and and your songwriting is great. I'm not not saying it's not. But the thing that really kills me about this band is the arrangements, um, the way y'all. It is so rare as a person who studies music and lives music and is a music director to be listening to something and go, "Whoa, what? What did <laughs> what what just happened?" Because cool stuff happens, but we all know what's going to happen in like 90% of like rock pop, you know, whatever you guys want to call yourselves in that overarching, we know what's going to happen. We know what's coming next. And so often in your songs, I'm just, <laughs> my eyes get really big and I'm like, Whoa. Um, and yeah, is that, is that something that happens in like band rehearsal? Did you guys figure that stuff out together? Or like Sammy, when you write it, are you just like, okay, and then here we're going to go to halftime and here we're going to suddenly be doing a waltz in the middle of a party <laughs> song. And like, how does that happen? <laughs> Well, I think a couple, I was like a couple things. I think it's a little bit of both. I think some of it happens in my process and some of it happens in the process with the band. Um, first of all, let's throw a party with the feel changes. That was intentional. And mm-hmm. it, I, it took a lot of shedding yeah. hard. And that song, we tracked that song in different segments and two different tempos. So, but I had the intention of it having these feel changes. Um, but this decision to kind of get to the end and have this really broken down kind of R&B groove thing where the <laughs> uh, kind of waltz section sort of comes back as like a, a, a deep groove was a was a band decision. In terms of when I'm writing, I I'm when I want when I decided I was going to start making music and I wanted to be musician. I knew that I wanted to be in a project all the time. I didn't just want to be like a session people, right? A session person. I knew that I wanted to be in a steady project. I knew I wanted to front the project, but I knew I wanted it to be a band. I knew I didn't want to be a solo artist. I knew I wanted to have a large band that I was in the middle of, but was very much full of multi-talented all the time players that people could come to know and love as much as they grow to know and love the front person. Um, and we found that in the friends and I find as time goes on or as times, this is just a given at this point, but as time was going on and I realized that these are the people that are on every project, this is the project. This is why people love it so much. I'm not just writing like grooves for a drummer. I'm writing grooves for Seabass and I'm not just writing sax lines for a sax player. I'm writing for Max and I'm writing for Kellen. And so part of that is knowing that I want there to be a cool drum fill here and I don't know what it's going to be, but I, like you said, trust Seabass enough to know that it's going to be ridiculous when I give him that space to do something. I know it's going to be amazing. So I'll kind of write this groove with the knowledge of, or think up this groove with the knowledge of Seabass is going to do something amazing to it. He's going to be able to understand what I'm trying to get across, but he's also going to add his own flares to it. So let me not be too diligent about what happens here, what happens here, what happens here. Same with chords. Like, Hey, I have this card. And it's like, this is the chord or this is a seven. And I know that when I bring it to JQ, it's going to become more interesting as informed by his baseline and kind of his suggestions quarterly. So I think in 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 the chapter of a song where it's just living with me before it comes to the band, I am imagining and writing some parts for the for the members, but more so than anything, just kind of trusting and knowing that with that space if it's not too thought about, I don't need to be too heady about it because I know that they're going to bring something amazing in it. You know who you uh, you sound like right now? 
uh, is Miles Davis. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> Miles yep, 100. Were you really? To, to the point. So Miles Davis is is such an influence in how I write and how I arrange and everything. And his big thing was you don't write parts, you hire players. To the point where on some of his albums, he'd have a band put together and he would have one song where he was like, oh, I'm bringing in this pianist because I just, no offense, but I, I hear them on this song instead of you or whatever. You know what I mean? And like all that kind of stuff. And he would... Sometimes he would show up to sessions with literally just sketches. It's a, it's a little different with jazz than it is with these more, you know, developed tunes with lyrics and stuff. <laughs> but he would just show up with sketches and be like, so I don't know, kind of you do you here and you do you here. And, and Brilliance just was Sick. pooped out. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I was going to say, I'm reminded of Duke Ellington, who is famous for, you know, he he wrote his parts for his band. I mean, it's like a 20 person band, right? And he wrote this thing where it's like, no, I want you to take this solo or I, I want I want the third trombone to take the lead here because I just know that this guy can play this part, you know, or I mean, he had like a fiddle, like a violinist, you know, and it's like, you know, just knowing what textures you have and what what capabilities you have uh, really, really can make just an, a, a piece just I mean, it's it's like Sam says, it's like you're playing for you, you're not you're not writing for a bass and two saxophones and drums and guitar. You're writing for the the people that are playing these things, you know, so. Exactly. And I know that if there's a moment where, oh, I had this really cool melody in my head, it would sound cool if I sang it and I could put lyrics on it. But why beat it over the head if it's just such a good melody and it's so melodic? I know that that's going to be a Kellen thing because Kellen comes from jazz, but he also comes from the world of musical theater and he's a huge melody ear. Um, and his solos are super duper melodic. So I have this cool melody. I can make it a lyrical thing or I can give it to Kellen. And here's this big open space in flesh and bone. It's this big kind of like no form jazzy sort of open moment. I'm not going to give that to Kellen. I'm going to give that to Max because Max works very well in the like free realm. You know, so if it had any other sax player, maybe that melody would become a lyric. But I know that the melody would be better served rather than by you, me using my voice as the instrument by using Kellen saxophone as the instrument. You know, you know, another thing I, I wanted to mention, too, is, uh, you know, you're talking about the arrangements and all this. I mean, one of the guiding mantras, I mean, just the principles that I, I've always, I, I try to do with what I do with the band and and with what uh, I mean, I think everybody enjoys it. It's like just this idea of playing with expectation. You know, if you're here, if you hear, um, you know, it's like the idea, you know, a lot of it comes from like this rule of threes, you know, and things like that. Um, but, you know, so much of it comes down to expectation. Like, you know, for example, this, this uh, let's throw a party tune. You'd never, ever expect the chorus to be, the, I mean, the first, no, the second chorus, the second time you hear the chorus of the song, it's with two saxophones and voice. That's it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just playing with that idea, that idea of expectation. You know, so much of it. Um, and that that's that's where a lot of this idea of halftime on the bridge is. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of that. I think Seabass uh, is too. Uh, you know, and I we, think all we rhythm just, section players are because I am as well. <laughs> it's it's, it's a so thing. good. You know, you just can open up. You know, and uh, and then it just makes that chorus so much more impactful when it comes in. But, you know, um, there's there's so many. I'm trying to think of any particular moments. I mean, we have, um, you know, take a tune like uh, Denim Jacket, right? You know, where it's like we have the first chorus. The, the, all three of those verses are very uh, distinctively and categorically different from each other. Yeah. And, and the idea was like, 
how can we add more energy as we go along and not um, make it sound like a different song? And so, you know, the first the first verse is just guitar, and then the roads come in with the vo- you know with the vocals, obviously too, and the hi hat. Don't forget that. And um, hey, <laughs> and uh, that second verse is you know the whole band is kind of in there. There's like more of active bass line, and then the third verse is just drums and vocals, and then the the guitar comes in accent something else. So it's really this idea of playing with uh, with the expectation that somebody has, because I mean the rules are there for for pop music for all these different genres, jazz, rock, everything that we do. There are certain rules and, and guidelines, and uh, you know it's really nice when we just you know it's also nice to just like let the people get hear what they want, you know, which um, you know I think uh, take a tune like. Um, you know, like Saw It Coming is really good with this, where it's like, you know, when we, the second time we hit this pre-chorus, for example, it's like, it's That's kind of... That's my song. That's my song. It's, it's kind of like exactly what you want it to be. It's 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 not more, you know, we, I remember in rehearsal, we were really struggling with, I mean, not struggling, but this is something that we worked out. We're just like, how do we play with the expectation of what this pre-chorus is, wants to be? And then we're like, let's just mm-hmm. let it be what it wants to be, you know? It's like nothing wrong with that. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think it's just really conscious with that. Another example I'm thinking of is um, with the Christmas tune that we did. Uh, if anybody doesn't know, any of your listeners, we did a cover of Wham. Um, <laughs> the tune is last Which was Christmas. the first thing I actually listened to from, from y'all. Oh, nice. And um, I was so ready to be disappointed because you covered Wham. That's why we covered <laughs> that we song. So because that song consistently disappoints. I know, that's that song is that like one. the king of rules on how to play that song. And like one of the, that's one of the things with our covers. It's like, we don't want to be just another band playing this song. We want to be how Samuel and the Friends plays this song. Yeah. And so we're very deliberate about like, this is what people expect. This is what we're going to do. We have this like huge, like bar long break in the, the last chorus. You know, it's like, you know, you know, there's no other cover that does that. You know, it's like we also also deliberately like with the harmony, we we change some of the harmony where on the original it's the synth line and we do it with the horn line. We we just flip the whole thing on its head. So it's like this idea of playing with this expectation. Everybody knows that song. So how can we make it our own? You know, uh everyone wants to rule the world, same example, you know. Um I think uh I don't really want to say too much about that song because who knows what's in the future with that? We're gonna put it out in a couple of months. Sam, we're gonna can't release it. Single. Is this a Rasafari <laughs> okay. exclusive? I'm very excited. Exclusive. Right now. <laughs> I can't. If I had a dollar for every time somebody asks us to put it on Spotify, I could pay for putting it on Spotify. So <laughs> we may as well do it at this point. There you, go. you get you can get larger crickets. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's awesome, and that that sets up a uh, kind of uh, I, I don't prep questions but one thing that i was thinking about is i i want to i want you guys to talk about taste a little bit because i think um both as individual musicians uh and and vocalists and all the things that you are and as a band you have incredible taste there are times one thing that i hate as a musician is um I'll go see an amazing drummer, amazing bass player, whatever uh especially vocalists in my world tend to do this um and they're amazing but they can't stop showing that they're amazing. Every fill has to have hertas and have, you know, 30 second note runs. And yes, I saw your, I saw your Instagram. And, um, every, I have heard covers of songs with so many riffs vocally that I can't find the melody. And I know it's a great singer with a great voice, but you don't actually need to sing every note and semitone that ever existed in one cover of a song. So I I think both as individuals, like, 
James, you have some of the most creative baseline fills and runs that Please. I have ever heard. But at the same time, you are happy to sit on your butt and play the one and yeah. play quarter or eighth notes when that's what you yeah. know a song calls for. And like you said, sometimes you completely, as a band, subvert expectations. And then sometimes mm-hmm. you're just like, okay, this is this, it's, it's a party I mean, song I think and of this a, chorus is a party. I think of uh, Jack, Jackie is an example of that, you know. Whereas, like, I, I was, th- I, I kind of was thinking about that song, being like, "Wow, are we gonna go full ham on this one?" No, this verse is about this very special person. You know, this is about femininity. You know, let's let's be let's be. Let her kind. have it. This is Let about femininity. It. Let's not have the guys stump all over it like always <laughs> exactly. happens in this world. <laughs> Let me tell them Gosh. about femininity. No, it's, it's anything uh, more annoying. Anything. I'm about to mansplain this experience no. to you with my base. <laughs> with my base. No, yeah, that was that was one where I was very deliberate. Like, let me play just. The meat and potatoes on this. Yeah, Yeah. no, and it's so good. Um, And then even like even at the end, then when um, when you come in like on with the with the driving (laughs) quarter notes and the driving snare and stuff, it's it's still not too much. It's really tasteful. And man, it could have been. There's a world where you have a different drummer and there's double bass flying through that part and it's just (laughs) stomping all over you. And we all know it. We've all heard it. You know, and it's just, it's, um, yeah. So how do you guys manage to stay so damn good, but also like, you know, not be (laughs) a-holes musically? I think we were just so connected as people and the rehearsal space and the, the shed in general, which is JQ's house. Um, right which is kind of like where... So that's how you got to be where, music director. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. So have yeah. to have a studio, man. That's it. It's how Frank Sinatra got famous. He's the only musician that had a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that space is really sacred to us because when we're not in that space, literally when we're all together as eight and we're not in that space... We're like in our sequence and the girls are like beating our faces and we're getting ready to go out in front of a thousand people or we're getting ready to be on camera to talk to someone that we really admire or we're in the studio working with engineers in a very, you know, professional environment and we kind of have to uh, apply our energy to that room and it's an entirely different process. But when we are in JQ's space where we come together to like shed and fully arrange songs and get ready for the studio, get ready for tour. It's really sacred. And we spend a good amount of time missing each other and loving each other. But when we do finally like, like get started, like downbeat and we start playing, it's just this amazing thing that fuels us so much as individuals, as well as musicians. And also by nature of the space, we're all kind of like in a circle as we're practicing So we're all looking at each other and things will just happen. Like what you said, JQ looked at Seabass. That's just like on the reg. Like we'll be playing and we think that we know how the verse is going to go. And then the second time around we play it, like Seabass will play a sick fill and everybody will look at him and seven people will be like, woo! And then, so obviously we're going to do that next time. Or the horns will take a solo and there's a a, a motif that particularly sticks out and we love it so much that it becomes part of the tune, the melody at some point. Or the girls will sing something or Will will play some like that we're like, oh my God, that's that. So I think it just is a testament to us being so connected, like visually and energetically 
as we're getting songs ready that, and, and like Jake, you said, like we work on them so much and we play them so many times that we, <laughs> last Christmas, we literally shed that the night before oh, and man. then went to the studio and that has never happened before. It's normally like weeks of workshopping and we'll take something on the road before we even bring it into the studio. So we typically have a lot of time to just like hold it as a group before we make any firm decisions about what's going to be on the record or what's going to be happening on stage. And and we spend a lot of time letting each other try different things and seeing what works. And there's a great deal of understanding as well. Like, hey, man, I like that you were doing this, but you know, this can't be your solo. It has to be this solo. It makes more sense. Or I, I'm loving this chord. And I know that everybody's against me, but we're going to stick with this chord. Trust me on it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a combination of, I think the original question you asked was our sense of taste. And I think it's in, in, in thanks to our, uh, communication skills, um, the unique way in which we prepare for the studio and, and the live performances and also our understanding of each other. I mean, you know, you've mentioned this before, Sam is like, we are eight people that come from eight very different parts of the country very different uh, worldviews, um, you know, just very different backgrounds. Um, sure. And uh, we are we are all very equal, you know, very allowed to kind of bring whatever we want into it. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I think that it, it's hard to even dissect where one influence ends and another begins just because yeah. we all are such fans of music. And such fans of each other in the band. And we're all very good at um, bringing a lot of that in. Very cool. Very cool. And yeah, um, you, you know, you mentioned diversity. Um, incredibly diverse band in a lot of different ways. Um, how does that help? And like, for people who are listening to this, I'm guessing that a lot of my fans have not heard of y'all yet. So like, <laughs> talk about the band a little. And I'm saying yet, because everyone's gonna. But, um, you know, let's uh, tell me about your band a little bit. And, and that diversity and how that plays into who the friends are uh sure so we are eight folks um we come from all over the country jake you said this perfectly uh you know kellen comes from deep alabama jake you comes from miami seabass is from virginia beach max is from la will and i are both like true and true new englanders myra and kaya were born and raised in new, in new york city so we come from different upbringings. We also come from different kind of schools of thought, schools of music. Some of us went to school for music. Some of us didn't. Some of us spent our, you know, young adulthood studying heavy in jazz. Some of us are very much influenced by world music. Uh, some of us come from a musical theater background, a gospel background, a, a liturgical background. Some of us come from Americana and folk. Some of us come from, uh, you know, hard rock and classic rock and jam even. So there's a lot of different things coming in. And I think what's um, special about that is I never know what genre to tell anybody we are, because I, I think that's kind of the consistency with us is that it's inconsistently sticking to a genre. Like we put out the box, which is like a straight ahead folk tune. And then we put out denim jacket like two months later, which is a straight ahead, like disco funk soul 
moment, right? Um, I'm and watching I think that the is playing his part with his hand, as you say. But also, but also, she said straight ahead, so I'm like, you know what I mean? Yeah, ding, 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 yeah. straight ahead, jazz. I can't. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, you'll hear it. You'll hear it, man. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. You don't know the you'll, you'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear. You'll hear the changes. Uh, yeah, but I think the fact that we come from so many different musical places is special, and we all found each other in New York, even more concisely in Brooklyn, which is just the kind of space where there's so much art to consume, and there's so many places to go consume art that I think it was just a matter of time before all of us attracted each other. And what's so di- even though there's so much that's different about us, and, you know, we're eight folks, and we we are straight people and queer people and people of color and people in their thirties and people in their early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who grew up in, in different, uh, economic tiers. Yeah. There's this consistency in our dynamic and that we all really want kind of the same things for ourselves and the global community. Like we're just generally optimistic people that care about social justice. We care about environmental preservation. We care about, uh, you know, All these things. Human rights. (laughs) Yeah, we care very much about human rights. Um, We care very much about communication. We believe very much in friendship. Um, We believe in second chances and and, and all these things. And we just kind of found each other. And I think we all had these things lingering, but they took different kind of amounts of space up in everybody else's life as, as due to their upbringing and who they were as a person. And we just kind of informed each other in that way. So we're consistently learning from one another. And the thing that holds it all together, other than us just like trying to be good people walking through the world and making the world a better place is we all really care about and believe in this project, like big mood. And I remember in the very beginning when I was just pulling like the players I knew and not the players that I loved and I wanted to play with the couple of players that I knew it was like, okay, we're going to play for tips on Thursday night at seven and there's five people on stage and we're going to make like 40 bucks. I I can pay you 20 bucks for this gig. I'm going to go out of pocket. I'm not going to make a dime. But if you stick around, I promise you, I believe in this thing so much. I have this crazy vision in six months to a year. We're all going to be getting paid. Everybody's going to eat. Are you in or are you out? And some of them were like, I'm in and they're still here. And now we're all reaping the benefits. And some of them were like, I'm out. I need to be paid. I'm, I'm cut out for the session guy thing. And I was like, cool. But but I started to realize those that were cut out for the long haul thing because they shared this vision and this faith and this thing that didn't really exist yet. And now here we are and we get to get paid to go on vacation. And it's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's great. Touring is definitely the best thing ever. Like oh, it's yeah. hard, yeah. but I live for the road. Please. I it's yeah. funny because yeah. I never feel like it's hard. I always feel yeah. like it's the best thing in the entire world. And it's, it's so honestly, funny because like I think I think some of the members in the band are, are like, okay, you know, I'm I'm ready to go back home. But I am always ready to be out. Like <laughs> I live. I do live for the road. I really love it. But even more so than like I miss my bed, is just like I love Brooklyn right. a lot. And I like feeling like I don't know. I don't think that I'm cut out to be on the road. Like ten months out of the year, we also miss. We fruit. might get there. You know, we're talking literally yeah, we about how oh. to make a travel crate for a white tree frog. Yeah. If any, <laughs> if talked. any Rossifari listeners out there know how to travel with the frog, 
It's just difficult. He's got heat, Sliding heat those, requirements. Say, the heat that really kills it. Yep. It's the Somebody heat. It's the, <laughs> it's the humidity. I'd be too nervous. But yeah, that is that is a factor. It's like I get worried about my plants. I get worried about my frog because there's always somebody babysitting him. But usually the folks that will babysit fruit oh, when I'm not band. in town are in the band. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So when the whole band is on the road, no you know, it's not every neighbor in Brooklyn that wants to feed live crickets to my pet frog. That's kind of gross. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I love being on the road. I live for it. And we also have like two ladies in our band who are, you know, had never traveled in any capacity really outside of New York spare, maybe somewhere in the United States before they were part of the project. So it's been in the beginning, it was kind of rough for them. I think like more than a couple days, but it is inherently a new and stressful thing to be in a car for six hours, to have everything that you, you will survive off of in a duffel bag for 10 days. That's an inherently stressful thing, but it's been exciting to watch them get better at it. It's been it's exciting to watch everybody yeah, get better at it. Sure. And, and we learn each other's quirks and what we all need to survive on the road. Yes. Yeah. Some, so, you know, I'm I'm with you in that, like, Seabass, I'm with you that, like, I love being on the road. It's actually not hard for me at all, Um, even though I have animals that I love and and that kind of stuff. The hard part to me is when other people have a hard time with it because I'm very empathic. And that's what actually, like, uh, like when we did Charlie Brown, uh, James, like, People yep. were were struggling, and and by the yeah. end of that tour, we did this like final sit down, get together, and chat, and everyone like so many of the people's like comments were like, "We made it," and "Oh my god, we survived this," and I was like, "This was, this was like I don't want to go ten home. weeks of, of fun playing music and being on a bus. I've I've done eleven months. Let's go." <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's uh it's just so funny to be talking about this life because it, I I really don't know when this life will be coming back. It's probably like the idea of getting like, you know, we had like a 25 person team in two buses going to, you know, a a different city every night to sell for a couple hundred to a couple thousand people. (laughs) That that whole concept just seems very foreign right now. But I will say, um, you know, uh, for anybody who's listening, who is in, you know, is is any in any sort of the arts that, you know, you, you have the opportunity to travel or, you know, you, you see this as something in your life, definitely pursue it because it's one of the greatest things that I have ever done is just just being able to explore the world and uh, and travel. I mean, it's it's really it's just so unfortunate that this, this is the time that we're in right now. But, um, yeah, you know, just uh, I, I think that this band is very is very interesting for that because it's like Sam said, I mean, our back our background singers, um, they had never played a show until they played with the band. Seriously, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- I th- actually, I think Kai Kai had had a few shows, but this was Myra's first concert ever. Was with us, so you know, you learn a lot about yourself not only just on stage, but with like when you're in the when you're in the on the road and what you need in the world and 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 what uh, how you can ask for that. And I, I have a lot of tour experience where it's just you know getting getting to see that. John, I want to point put the camera on you because I have never met anybody who uh, every city that they go to, they have to go to the zoo <laughs> and they have to see the pandas. So I, I, this, is, this is amazing, man. But you know what? You know what is going to make you the most happy? 
and you go and do that, you know? Well, and you know, it's like you said, I found that from touring. Like, right. Before touring, I liked zoos and I liked aquariums right. and I would go occasionally. But when mm-hmm. I started off on the road, when you start off, I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you're going to love touring. It's hard at first. And you realize that you forgot yeah. a pillow and you realize that, you know, like just stuff happens. <laughs> you're um, on your the second pair of underwear. It's lasted you like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. I should probably <laughs> shower at some point. And, um, and I... When I was on the road and I was, you know, at the beginning and struggling, I was like, well, what makes me happy? Animals make me happy. I should start trying to check out zoos. And it became mm-hmm. a thing and it launched my podcast. And now most of my best friends are animal people. And I've done all kinds of cool, amazing things in the last couple of years from that. And it's because it took being on the road to realize how important it was to me. Like I knew it was important, but mm-hmm. man, did I lock into who I was while on the road. And yeah. I also nice. went from being very ashamed and apologizing for who I am a lot, um, uh, for, for my dreams and for my hopes and for, um, yeah, just who I am to being unapologetically me. And, and it's so good and it's so much better. And if people don't like it, bye, I'm leaving city next day. Exactly, anyways, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Really yeah. Tough. It took the road to really make me realize what mattered to me and who I am. And also yeah. the other thing is I just think so many of the problems we have in this country and, and in the world, but, um, are because people don't travel and they don't get an mm-hmm. outside experience. And oh, yeah. the, the amount of, you know, homophobic people I've talked to who have never met a gay person or, you know, what I, it, it's mind blowing to me or, or they say, Oh no, the, the, the world's like this. And I'm like, yo, go to, go to Alabama, go to California, not even talking about like Europe or anything. Just you mm-hmm. will see so much different stuff and learn about so many different people um yeah touring is so good i just i love it (laughs) me too too. i I could die that way i I probably will i'm never going to retire i already know oh my goodness myself i will be like mauled by a tiger at a zoo in some other state and miss the show that night and that's how everyone will know i was gone i love it and we would be happy for him. I'd be happy for me and for the tiger. <laughs> <laughs> he died doing what he loved, getting mauled by a tiger. Exactly. <laughs> Truly. You know, um, I want to, you know, I think it's, it's, I just realized like our paths are actually not that far. Uh, a lot of the touring that we do, there is some element of like animals and like wildlife, you know, like I'm just thinking back when we were in Brazil, we, uh, we had a day and Sam and Will went to the, the zoo, right? And, uh, yeah, I saw a rhino for the first time. I lost my what? shit. Rhinos are so big, yeah. so big, so big. And I saw some big honking toads <laughs> and honking. really big. Is that a scientific term? Is that the Latin name? <laughs> we saw some monkeys. We saw some little marmosets. Oh, yeah. We crazy. saw a lot of monkeys in, in Rio. That was really cool. Marmosets. See, that's looking oh, up marmosets. Oh, marmosets are awesome. <laughs> I've, I've actually gotten to uh, to feed a couple marmosets. They are they are the cutest little. They're just so smart and so really. Yeah, yeah this podcast has been really John, good to me. <laughs> what what pets have you got? You said you have some animals that you love, and you're worried about traveling. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I've got a, a long haired Chihuahua named Lexi, and and she is oh the least Chihuahua dog ever. She's super chill. It's <gasps> lovely. Ch- Lexi was the name of my parents' nice. first dog. But she was a she was a Shih Tzu nice. Pekingese. That's awesome. And then let's see, there is a uh, Western hognose snake, which is the cutest snake ever. Um, oh my God, I know what snake that is, and they're so, so cute. cute. Yes. <laughs> um, a, I have a turtle, I have a leopard gecko, um, a hamster, 
and and I think that's it right now. I think that's it right now. There have been others. There have been other hamsters and chameleons and um, all <gasps> kinds of good stuff. Yeah. Do you love your leopard gecko? So much. He is so bad at being uh, a hunter. Um, I give him <laughs> dubia roaches, and yeah. uh, they he still can't catch those. Like crickets are hard. Roaches should be easier. So I put them yeah. in. Then I flip them over, and then sometimes yeah. he still misses. So then I have to hold them for him, and even then sometimes he misses. And wow. Hashtag parenting. That's great. <laughs> Fruit will not eat out of my hand or out of like forceps. He just won't do it. And when he was little, I was worried because he wasn't eating enough. So I would put him in like I had like a big giant popcorn bowl and I would like put him in there and put the cricket in there and just let it be like deathmatch situation. Because <laughs> I, I would feel I'd feel better putting him back in his tank knowing that he had eaten at least one and he didn't like that. And so sometimes if I know that he hasn't eaten in a couple days and he's got to eat that night, I'll just put the crickets like I'll pour them into his water bowl. And then they'll just be like floating and he can just eat them that way. Hey, whatever works, you know. A lot of people Parenthood is mad. Motherhood motherhood is magical. Oh, yes, yes. I can tell you're a very good mother. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she is. Yo, all this talk of food is making me so hungry. (laughs) You want a Repulink? Hold on. Let me throw you you in a big bowl so that you can catch it easier and we'll be fine. Can you imagine? Seabass, you're in a big, giant bowl bowl, and there's like a giant plate of tostones just rolling down the bowl and you have to eat them all. Speaking of which, John, is it a big deal if I ate my lunch? No, I don't, I don't care. I'm going to go get my lunch. It's go feeding lunch. time for the sea bass. All right, quick, guys, while he's gone, let's talk about getting yeah. you guys a real drummer. Okay, no. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> you know, it's the, I mean, there's the inside joke in the band that sea bass is the third call sub for the actual gig and yeah. that he's he's just a temporary fix. Uh, so John, maybe you might be, you, you could probably be the second call sub. Hey, that works. Yeah. That works. Of like, of <laughs> yeah. like all folks that, I mean, obviously everybody in this project is really difficult to replace, obviously, but uh, it's very difficult to, you know, God forbid JQ can't make a gig for his own project. I we can find a chart and you can listen to the recording. We can figure it out. But so much of what CBS does is that spontaneous, like little licks and little things that are not written down anywhere, but we've just made eye contact at the bridge so many times that he knows now to play this fill when we're live. So it's kind of, it's doubly funny because it would be really difficult to find somebody to sub for Seabass. So the joke is that he's the third call sub and the regular guy is never available. And the, the, the sub, the first guy we would call is never available. So we yeah. just have to settle for Seabass. It's a, it's a tough, the third it's call a sub. Gig. That's a, it's a, it's a thing that I gig. love about being uh, in the rhythm section. Um, not being the star, but being supportive, but also knowing that like you can bring something to the band and to that feel that that can't be replicated because you could you're right you can replicate the notes sure. but you cannot replicate a good drummer or a good bass player and um you know i think i mean you know like you said if god forbid you ever needed to to find a new player in in either of those positions i think you're just you're not going to find the same person it's going the it's band's going to sound different and you know yeah. like, for sure that's not always true with with vocals or, or sax or anything even though everyone brings their own thing and i'm not taking away anything anyone does but like yeah there's definitely something about a rhythm section in that field that just yep it's its own thing i'm curious we talked about uh about your frog a little bit but um what do you like talk to me about your thoughts on the environment and the the world and just all that good stuff 
Wow, loaded. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, also, I, environmental responsibility and responsibility in the outdoor space is like hugely important to me because I consider myself an outdoors person, and when it's seasonally appropriate, I'm always outdoors. Um, and you know, little things like don't walk off the trail, don't pick any wild plant life, you know, leave it cleaner than you found it, pack out, take your garbage with you, take somebody else's garbage with you, simple things like this. But I find that I, we do so much talking about loving yourself and elevating queer voices and elevating voices of color on the platform for the band that I just recently decided to make through an official Instagram in which it's like he's first person, he's speaking, and that is the space where I'm very environmentally vocal and share like interesting and, and important articles. So I guess fruit is kind of the environmental advocate side of my personality. What is, so I what can is kind of Instagram? talk about these two things. It's fruit the frog. Amazing. I can't wait to follow. Yeah. Give him, give him a follow. And yeah, I mean, uh, deeply important to me. I grew up in Connecticut, um, in like the woods, woods, my, my parents' yard is, is like kind of the, the end of a state park. So I always had the chance to run around and do that when I was young. We didn't travel much, but as soon as I became a young adult, traveling became hugely important to me. Um, I'd like to see every state park in the country. And there's just so it's, there's so much to be done. It's worrisome because it seems like the United States is so far behind the global consciousness of what needs to be done immediately and drastically to ensure that even I'm not talking about generations for now. I'm talking about my children have a, a, a reality where they can enjoy outdoor spaces the way I did and my parents did and my grandparents did. And it has to be immediate. It has to be dramatic and drastic. It has to be uncomfortable. Um, and it has to be longstanding. We need to start not putting band-aids on things. Um, you know, it's great when a corporation switches to a, uh, biodegradable packaging system, but we need to see corporations making donations to offset their carbon footprint. You know, we need to see people working to undo the things which have been done in the past, working towards, um, environmental preservation on a larger scale, time-wise, um, and it's got to be dramatic. It's got to be really dramatic. It breaks my heart because I've traveled to different countries. I've traveled even to different states, and I live in New York City where so many people live on top of each other, and it is quite difficult to shop, especially nowadays, but in certain kind of like food deserts in New York where it's you're nowhere near a Target, you're nowhere near a Walgreens or a Walmart. So people Amazon everything. And especially in New York City, first of all, you have to break down all your cardboard. You have to separate everything out. And then it all goes to the same place anyway. It's a shame, you know. Yeah. But it doesn't – when I say longstanding and dramatic, it doesn't just need to happen in metropolises. It needs to happen everywhere. If I, if I could jump in too, I mean, uh, I, you know, am from – I mean, me – I mean, we're – you know, I, I'm from Miami, right? I mean, and th this is a city that like three years ago or four years ago – they gave it like a like a you know month years to live basically like everybody was saying that Miami is going to be underwater by 2050 and um you know i have seen in my lifetime the the impact of what's going on with sea level rise uh it's not like you know you're walking around and everything's underwater all of a sudden it's it's when it's you know it's it's a full moon and there's no rain 
And so that means that the streets are going to be flooded with, with three to three inches to a foot of water in some places. And, uh, you know, it's, that is not, this is, this is something that, I mean, thankfully I'm from Miami beach to be totally specific. And, um, thankfully Miami beach has taken a lot of initiatives with, uh, with, with environmental, um, action. Um, the city of Miami is, uh, has a lot more room to catch up. The state of Florida has a lot more room to catch up. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, I, I also like Sam, you know, I, uh, growing up being outdoors was very important. I used to go camping very often with my grandmother in the Everglades and seeing how this thing that it's very easy to see that this, this land is a wasteland or whatever, you know, like you could look at the Everglades and think it's all different sorts of things, but I mean, it really is a river. It's an ecosystem unlike anything else in the world. And, yeah. um, you know, being up close and personal with that is, is, uh, is been something that's really shaped my view of the world. Um, I, I personally make every effort to just be conscious of what footprint I'm leaving, whether it's a carbon footprint or even just, even just, um, you know, I just, it's, you got to tread lightly in the, in this world. You know, you can't, you know, it's, it's so stupid, but like stuff like when you're brushing your teeth, turn off the water. It's, it's just little things like that, that like, you know, there, there's so much improvement that we can make, you know, um, you know, I, I've been actually in a lot of conversations with, I have a few friends with like 350 and different organizations that, and, um, just been talking about, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of people think that just because they are buying a biodegradable packaging or, or, you know, getting deliver, getting something delivered a certain way that like it is, you know, helping out. But I mean, the best thing that you can do is reduce and people forget about that in the, in the circle, reduce, reduce, reduce. So, you know, I, I always am turning away the silverware in the, if I do get delivery, if I have to, um, and, and it's something, you know, I'm also the tour manager, the tour manager for the band too. And, um, it's something that we are always very conscious of is like, how can we minimize our footprint? Because, you know, it's, it sucks, you know, for us, it's kind of this double-edged sword. You want to go out there and you want to tell people about how amazing it is to be environmentally conscious. It's going to take some, (laughs) you're going to have to destroy the environment to do it. So it's, you know, every day I just try to see how can I reduce my impact? I mean, I've, I compost, there's no composting collection regularly over here. So it is a chore, but it is, it is something that. You'd be surprised if you start composting and this is, I mean, you know, to anybody listening, like you'd be surprised how much of your trash could be put into compost and how little actual trash needs to go to the landfill and yeah. be then put into rivers and, and, and oceans all over the place. You know, truly, it's kind of, it, it's, it's really crazy how easy it is to do this. And, um, you know, I just want, as, as a little bit of a uh, silver lining with this, you know, I, I don't know if this is just my bubble, but it does seem like. Um, the current administration, uh, they are making environmental impact the center of everything that is happening. It's not just the environmental agency. It's the deal. It's the uh, transportation agency. It's state department, UN, everybody is like how, not only how is this going to impact the climate, but how is this going to be, uh, diversified so that it impacts the communities that are on the front lines of this climate? Because, uh, this is climate change because like, you know, it's so nice to just sit around and talk about climate change and all the things we can do, but there are people's lives that are being impacted. And it's the people who 
can least afford to to do you know to 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 see a different way. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And like little things too. I know this isn't a reality for everybody, but I when I moved from my last apartment to this apartment, I was like, this is probably gonna be my last apartment in New York. I'm tired of moving every 18 months. I'm gonna stick around for a couple of years. You know, and I, it was really important to me that I had an outdoor space because I wanted to have a garden, even though it's small. But that's really important to me. And JQ is a garden. So here we are. It's We live in New York City. And it's not just us because we have garden plots. Um, you can do a windowsill garden and then you don't have to buy herbs. And herbs come in plastic packaging. Why? I don't understand. You don't have to buy herbs. You don't have to buy tomatoes. Those are really simple. Um, so we grow some of our own food. And I've had a great time sharing it with my neighbors in my community. And I eat, I live next door to, um, uh, it's actually four generations in the same house. They're amazing. And, and they've lived there forever. And I'm kind of closest to, so there's Marva and then her daughter, Yvette, is probably 60. I'm closest to Yvette and then her son and then her son's daughter. So these four generations are living in this house. They've been here forever. They've been in bed for like however many years. And I've been here for two summers now. I had this great relationship to them where I started gardening. They were really grateful. I didn't realize how fast cucumbers run. And anybody who's, you know, come to my house realized my entire fence was taken over by cucumbers. (laughs) And I called my neighbor and I felt so bad because I feel this great deal of responsibility to her as kind of like a vanguard for the block. And I'm like, listen, Yvette, I'm sorry. My vines are coming over. I'm going to cut the vines somewhere. And she says, don't worry. No, I'm getting cucumbers over here. <laughs> so so I, I had this surplus of cucumbers and I couldn't keep giving them off to her because now she was getting some and I had too many for my household. So I start giving them to my neighbors. And then a neighbor one day came by and gave me this, gave me a, <laughs> yeah, gave them to you. A neighbor gave me this beautiful little watermelon and I inspired Yvette to start planting her own stuff, which is really great. Uh, JQ collects rainwater to water, water all of his plants. Um, you can't tell the so city that though. It's kind of it's, it's actually illegal in New York. But okay, yes, never mind. Really? Why? <laughs> Seriously? Why? Why? Okay, New York is just like the city of lawsuits. You know, it's the city that never stops suing. <laughs> so like, you know, they there is this thing where it's like if you were to drink that water, or if New York City allows you to drink the rainwater, that you could that you could get sick from it or something. And then you could turn around and sue the city because the rainwater that you're given is not good. Sure. I don't know. It's, it's a city that never stops suiting, you know? Well, don't tell anybody that. And John, you can cut that part out. Um, No, keep that in there. Let them know. You're the rebel, man. I think it's, I I just think that, you know, if somebody, you know, I'm sure that many of the listeners, if not all the listeners of your show are probably already somewhere on the environmentally conscious spectrum. Um, and, uh, I just, I just want to encourage everybody listening to just push yourself a little further because it's really yeah. not that hard. And if you just, you just think about it, like, you know, what's one thing that I can do th- today to reduce my impact, not only just on the carbon footprint, but in, in everything, I mean, in supply chains, you know, like ordering something on Amazon, can I go to a local store and buy this thing? Because like, especially right now, local stores are getting hit very hard. Um, I'm looking at buying, uh, some new books and, um, I, I found a little um, bookstore in the West Village that I want to go to to go check out and uh, just see if I can support. It's black owned, and uh, you know, you can kind of you can kind of check all the boxes instead of just checking the checkout cart. You know, I mean, it's it's really it's really. I, I just want to encourage everybody to just push themselves on one more front because 
and 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 it's just like share share this information you know i'm 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 debating right now about doing a uh, zero carbon february right now because it's just like it's it's really what better time than a pandemic to really analyze your carbon footprint you know like what mm-hmm. else you got going on you're not going anywhere <laughs> you know <laughs> i went to this uh I just I felt compelled to tell the story, but I went to the science museum in Philly a couple of years ago and they had this really interesting um, display kind of exhibit thing. Which Diorama. Was a big tank. <laughs> Diorama, pretty much. Yeah. And it was the Statue of Liberty and she was sitting on her little rock in the water next to New York City. And it asked you to type in your carbon footprint and then it would show you the water level that she would be under if everybody in the world had the same carbon footprint as you. And I go in and I'm like, I fly at the time. I wasn't flying so frequently. This was like, I fly maybe once every two years. I'm a vegetarian. I have been since childhood. Um, so that's great. I don't have a car. I walk everywhere. I infrequently take public transportation. You know, I recycle, I compost, I grow a lot of my own food. I'm like, I'm doing great. And I plugged the stuff in and I don't remember exactly what it looked like, but I had a low carbon footprint. And then it said, if everybody at the world in the world was at kind of the carbon output that I was, the water in the diorama like rose all the way up and it came up to Statue of Liberty's like chest. And I was like, oh my God, we're all going to be underwater. Because then I start to think there are folks that JQ had mentioned who have no choice other than to be somebody who puts out a small carbon footprint because they're in poverty and they're in an environment where they can't really afford to have a hand on this movement, but they're being impacted the most. There's people Mm -hmm. who don't have any cars, people who own one shirt, one pair of pants, people who have never seen an airplane, people who only eat food that they grow. So these people kind of just by living the ways of life that, that they are afforded are keeping this kind of global footprint down. But if everybody in the world had a a footprint, even like somebody who, considers themselves to be environmentally conscious, it would be a train wreck, you know? It was really interesting. It was the first time I really thought about carbon footprint. That's fascinating. That's really- It was amazing. It was amazing. And then my dad was with me and he did it. And he's somebody who has a company car and travels frequently for work and probably flies three to five times a year. And it was crazy. It was over her head. Yeah. Yeah. That's, wow. That's a really, uh, really cool way to do that. Yeah, it's my favorite thing ever. It's my favorite thing I've ever seen in a museum. I was shook. I walked out. I was like, "Oh my god, what could I? What can I do?" Right. John, um, I'm curious because I imagine that there will be a few Sammy fran- fans, friends, friends that are listening to this. Friends, uh, is there is there some place, as some kind of a resource that maybe somebody's come on this show uh, that we can, you know, people can get more information about stuff like this? So. Most of the stuff that I have done is very um, animal specific and and animal focused, and I do a lot of uh, animal conservation stuff. Um, but honestly, and and this is going to sound like uh, to people who listen to me, it's going to be so obvious what I'm about to say, and it's going to sound very specific. But bear with me for a second. Uh, the Red Panda Network is a charity that I volunteer for, and I love. And um, what's really amazing about them beyond helping red pandas is that they do amazing community-based conservation, meaning they don't just say, oh, red pandas are dying, so we need to help get anti-poaching laws and we need to grow their forests back and stuff like that. But they look at the people of Nepal who are not killing pandas for pelts because they're pretty, but because their family is dying. 
and they mm-hmm. literally need the money to feed them. Yeah. And yeah. they give them jobs and they find ways to help them and they give them jobs that help with environmental protection. And mm-hmm. um, there's this big thing that happens a lot in the, the world right now where deforestation happens in such a way that it breaks up forests. So instead of mm-hmm. having a 10 mile by 10 mile forest, you now have a bunch of one mile by one mile forests and animals can't travel between them. So they can't breed and they can't um, get away from like if there's a, a forest fire, you know, there's nowhere to go, stuff like that. Uh, and so they're helping replant those forests and creating what they call forest corridors, meaning literally ways to go from forest to forest where it's still forest and, and rebuilding all of that. Um, and I think they're just such an incredible place. They have a lot of uh, literature about how to, for conservation's sake, you need to not just address the animals, not just uh, address poachers, but to address the people, the mm-hmm. uh, economic inequality in the world, the yeah, all the that systems kind of stuff. that are responsible for this. Yes. And, and they do such a good job explaining that. That it, um, you know, that is, I think, such a beautiful thing. And then, like you said, you can just you can apply that knowledge anywhere into your own life. Into how can I help? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Rossafari started off as a, a way to talk about cool animals and people, but it quickly became a way to share messages about conservation and saving. Because we can't just save animals. If you're if you're listening to this because you're a, a an animal fan, you can't just go and say like, oh, hey, we're going to save gorillas now. We're going to breed a bunch of gorillas and we're going to release them in the wild because there's no wild to release them into right now. <laughs> and and then no. if you do, they're going to get killed by people who are so poor that they can't afford to feed their family. But, you know, taking out a gorilla mm-hmm. is going to help. Bushmeat is you almost a huge can't afford not. You almost can't afford not to kill the gorilla. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, and it's, it, that is yeah. what our world is right now. Um you know, so many people, when they think of animal conservation, think the problem is rich people going and shooting endangered animals with special permits. And don't get me wrong. That's a problem. And it really pisses me off when I see those pictures. Um, and it makes it <laughs> yeah. a little bit harder to, to find restaurants to eat at on tour when, when you can't go to certain places uh, because their owners do that. Um, it, shout it, out. It sucks. Shout out. I don't want to get sued. No, but uh, I know, I know, but if, you're know, a su- yeah. if you're a sub shop and you have two, two first names in your name, you're a problem. That's all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> drag them. Oh, my goodness. But, but like, it's a real issue but that's not the main issue the main issue is that we have this horrible thing where there are billionaires in the world and then starving people in the world and the starving people gotta eat the red panda network i love it and there's and there are so many good conservation organizations um they're just one that i just i love i mean red pandas are my favorite animal but that's not why i love them that's how i found them the man has two behind his head (laughs) seabass right now just And he's got just, one in his bedroom out. too. He's got a. They didn't mention I, I, that he's got I, one. I, in I know his you're head. joking, but uh, no panda pets, everyone. Just a friendly reminder. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there, is, there, there is yeah. a panda sure. pet trade. So let's. Do, I know you're kidding, but but, I but, but I do have a hoodie on that says "Easily Distracted by Red Panda." Wow, is there really a panda pet trade? <laughs> yes, and it's 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 so stupid. They're horrible God pets. Damn. They poop everywhere. They will destroy everything. Sounds like sea like, bass. It is the least logical thing. The wild, the illegal wildlife pet trade for for rich people is insane. Astounding. It really is. I'm I'm amazed at at, at just it is. It's so dumb. We all saw Tiger John. King. I was going to say, John, what are your thoughts on Tiger King, man? <laughs> I yes, go off, go I off. It. I hate it. Is there a winner or is there a loser? 
Um, so I refused to watch the series because I had already heard the story uh, from a more, uh, let's say, a less sensationalized uh, podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but the truth is that the losers are zoos because mm. there are good zoos. There's a thing uh, called uh, the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and they are the people who accreditate zoos. Um, in the country and in, in the world. There are a couple different uh, really great organizations. And the AZA is so anal about how you treat animals and how you breed animals and how you take care of animals. Mm -hmm. And even stuff like zoos having to have um, economic feasibility for five years so that suddenly there aren't a thousand zoos that are going to go out or a thousand animals because your zoo is going out of business that they need to rehome yeah. and all that stuff. You know, it's it's really cool what they do. Um, hmm. And then there are also roadside zoos. And and there are some points in between, and we talk about it more on other podcast episodes. I won't go into all the details. But a good <laughs> accredited zoo does so much for conservation and so much for the, uh -huh. the um, uh, perseverance of species. Um, San Diego Zoo Global has reintroduced over 40 species that were extinct in the wild back into the wild. That's one part wow. of the AZA. What? Yep. The That's single, a lot. I know. It's amazing. The single largest uh, conservation organization or animal conservation organization in the world is the AZA. They do so much. It is so amazing what they do. But then people look at Tiger King and go, oh, zoos suck. And it's like, no, they really don't. And <laughs> at they no are... point in my brain did I consider what was happening on that ranch a zoo. That's not a zoo to me. That's a roadside Fair. attraction. Well, he, and you are He's smart. And I'm happy about zoo. that. Yeah. <laughs> However, as a person who runs a zoo positive podcast and Instagram, I can tell you that a lot of people did take Think it as a zoo, a zoo and yeah, did write yeah, to yeah. me and did tell me that I'm a jerk because I support them. And uh, I've had this conversation with a lot of people and people go to zoos and talk to keepers. I have friends that have been on the podcast and that are, you know, uh, zookeeper friends that tell me like somebody started asking me this question and it was innocent, you know, tell me your, your red panda's name, whatever. And then the questions got weirder and weirder and they realized that they were just trying to trap them and prove that this zoo you know this wonderful accredited zoo is actually a bunch of jerks and they're all trying to get rich off animals by the way no one who works at a zoo is getting rich off anything um <laughs> it's kind of like the entertainment industry where most of us who are in say. it make no money and we do it because we love it you know and it's good there's to like, make a living there's gotta be like th there must be like three rock star zookeepers that just keep everybody inspired right yeah pretty much like yeah. if you're an Irwin, like you can Grammy, get you can get Grammys. rich you know if, <laughs> the if, if grammys you're... for zookeepers <laughs> and even then Childhood they're doing hero. such good stuff right the Irwins are amazing and and yeah. we miss yeah. steve every day and like but um yeah so for me tiger king really uh just showed everything wrong with bad zoos which is like a good message except that they then forgot to say oh by the way this, this is, is not zoo. what zoos are, you know. Yeah, like and you're zoos. on your podcast, yeah. like I said, what I said. <laughs> I love, I love a good zoo. Yep. I know. Yeah, I, know. I could tell you all these. I mean, one thing that I do on my podcast, I end every episode with what's called the poop story, which is where a right. keeper just tells some gross or disgusting thing that has happened to them. Uh, you know, usually a funny story, but the funny, the thing, the reason I do it isn't just to have a gross story, although that's kind of fun, but it's because it shows how much they love these animals. And it's like, here's this thing that I care about so much that it's literally pooping in my mouth and I'm just like helping and taking care of it. And then hopefully brushing my teeth afterwards. <laughs> Jesus. You know, like, it's such a big deal though, that like 
these people who work in zoos give everything. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. really amazing. Yeah. And then for something like Tiger King to come out and make people think that's what zookeeping is, I just... And, you know, the thing to remember about all documentaries, even the ones that have have positive messages, is that they are a perspective and that it is easy to manipulate people with words and with photographs and videos. Um, Blackfish uh, has largely been discredited. People who were interviewed on it are out there screaming. They they changed or, you know, they they edited my audio in such a way to make it sound bad. I will personally vouch for the fact that I have worked with SeaWorld on trying to save like uh, specific animals when I was out in California and stuff. And they are amazing at it. They're actually also one of the biggest conservation organizations in the world. Mm-hmm. And so much of the footage that was in Blackfish wasn't from SeaWorld. But they don't tell you that. And if they don't tell you that, you look at it and you go, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. And, you know, you could you could question orcas in captivity. I understand that one beautiful thing is that we're all learning and we're all growing. And the AZA constantly changes their guidelines based on new science. And I I respect that. You know, Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. day, every everybody learns more about these animals. Um, But the fact is that actual documentary did so much damage to to the the AZA and to, to captive wildlife. That's, su- that's surprising it's to me. To, it's it's surprising to me to hear you say that it was so widely discredited because a lot of it was. I loved that documentary, um, and it didn't necessarily change anything so much as it affirmed like this core boiled down thought that orcas shouldn't be in captivity and that animals shouldn't be employed for like entertainment. Um, but it's surprising that you say it was so widely discredited because if I remember correctly, a lot of it just kind of revolved around documented incidents and the way that they were misrepresented to the media. Well, I'm curious what it is about what what it was that w- has been discredited. So a couple of the keepers who were uh – interviewed on it and like extensively shown on it uh, have come out and said these are clips taken out of context they literally edited you know you can go in i've done this on podcasts uh when people have misspoken never to change their thing but you can you can take a paragraph that somebody says and cut it down to a sentence that says something completely different you know what i mean yeah um and they have come out there's uh there's a a podcast um that i listened to called animals to the max uh with corbin maxi and one of the the keepers that was interviewed uh, for for Blackfish was on there talking about this. And he goes on for an hour and a half in much more detail than I could. You might want to check it out. Um, yeah. But that was one of the things. Another thing is that uh, some of the video footage, uh, I don't remember the percentage, but I want to say it was pretty high, um, that they show implying that it is SeaWorld is not. It is from yeah. captive facilities in Japan uh, that are not regulated. And again, that that would be like that would be like showing a documentary about the San Diego Zoo and then showing footage from Tiger King. You know, again, whether or not you agree with captivity of orcas and and you could get into the whole entertainment thing. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about um, enrichment and and animals that can love it and can hate it and how you can make it look like a show or you could make it not look like a show. And it doesn't really matter to the animal, to some animals. Um there is, there is, mm-hmm. this is a whole world. I mean, we, we could talk for hours on this, yeah. but, um, what it, what it boils down to is to me more than anything is that if you're making a strong case for something, you shouldn't have to lie and misrepresent it. 
Yeah. You know, and that's that's the thing. I'm not saying there's nothing in Blackfish that is real or that is worth considering. I think, like I said, we're all considering. There are literally people right now who are getting doctorates in animal behavior just trying to understand the chemical reactions that animals in captivity are having to things to see how they're comparing to their wild counterparts. There is a lot of Mm. study going on right now. Yeah. But if you come to me and tell me a thing, I don't care what it is. If you come to me and tell me that you released a new EP and that it has 20 songs on it and you don't have 20 songs on it, then I have to question your whole message because you're lying mm-hmm. on purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. There, wouldn't, there wouldn't be an EP, but more of an album. Fair point. That. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm joking. I mean, I, I, I know that growing up, growing up, uh, you know, I, and I went to university of Miami and they have an amazing, amazing animal um, rehabilitation. I don't know. It was rehabilitation. But, like, they work with the Frost Museum of Science and, uh, you know, they work with a lot of the different organizations down there to, to uh, kind of have walked this line between showing, showcasing these animals uh, but also helping to preserve them. I mean, the sea turtles are one example and, you know, they'll have, like, dolphins that they'll take in occasionally and it's, it's you know, it's to help these animals. Uh, it's just – I think it is possible to, to have people see the beauty of these creatures and not – you know, and, and also to help the creatures along the way. Who knows? Mm, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, people are constantly learning how to do that. And there's so much debate and discussion about like, um, you know, they'll say, oh, well, uh, this animal travels 20 miles a day to forage for food and you can't give it that in captivity. But does the animal want to travel 20 miles a day or does it have to to survive? Because humans used to travel 20 miles a day searching for food or whatever. You know, I mean, <laughs> we, we literally yeah. developed grocery stores so we could stop doing that, sit on our couches and watch Netflix. And, um, yeah. you know, there, there's some interesting debate about what wild behaviors are good for the animals and what wild behaviors are out of necessity. And when you look at captive mm-hmm. animals, um, a, a lot That's of species live almost twice as long in captivity. Uh, a red panda's average lifespan is eight years. And in, in, in captivity, it's it's 16. And I have met uh, 20-year-old red pandas. And they're thriving. Wow. And they're doing well. And, and zoos are really... That's an old panda. Yeah. And, and zoos are really careful about... Um, like the, There is a strong belief in euthanasia for quality of life. So we're not talking a decrepit panda who, you know, is missing an eye and has, a, ha, has snot coming out its nose and is coughing. And they're like, no, keep it alive. No, 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 no. We are talking healthy, awesome animals who are living double their lifespan because hmm. life is better for them. And that's, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. The white tree frog in captivity has a lifespan of 20 to 25 years, which is jaw dropping. And I was at a, <laughs> yeah. I was at the, um, echo Lehigh center in Burlington, which is this really awesome. Do you know what, do you know this place? It's I a conservation do. center in Burlington. Yes. It's amazing. I love it there. Um, and it's cool because it kind of ta- it's a, it's an, um, educational center, uh, talking about Lake Champlain and they talk a lot about how Lake Champlain is kind of touched by New York, Vermont and Canada. And then kind of those three bodies have to communicate and agree on how to best take care of this lake, which I think is really fascinating. And they had some animals um, in captivity there and they had a white tree frog. They see it on the tank and I'm like, I'm going to check this thing out and I'm looking and I can't see it. And there's this big fat rock in the back and then I realized, I think that's the frog. And then it turned. I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen a white tree frog. I didn't know they could get this big. 
And I like ran around like a crazy lady in there. And I'm like, can I talk to whoever handles the amphibians? And she was like, what? Let me go find somebody. And this lady came out and I said, what do you feed that frog? And how old is it? And she said, he's 19 years old. Wow. And he eats six, he eats six large crickets a day. I was like uh, blown away, blown away. And, uh, and, and that is not something that, that is, is reality. That's, that's not something that's a reality for a frog of that species in the wild. You know, yeah, it looks it looks more like 10, 12 years versus 20 to 25 years. Yep. Yeah. That that kind of thing is amazing to me. And I love that that was so cool for you, because that's one thing I always push people to do on this podcast is talk to people, talk to keepers, ask questions. Even the keepers who don't really like people, which is rare, but they exist, um, love talking about their animals and love when yeah. you get excited about their animals. It's for uh, sure. It's, and that's what literally I used to do that all the time before I had a podcast. And I would meet these people and I would talk and their stories would be cool and they would be cool. And I was like, "Ooh, I want to find a podcast that exists and tells their stories. And there wasn't one. And I was like, got it. And that's why I now have a podcast. I remember, I remember you talking about this on the bus, actually, like when you knew all these like zookeepers, I was like, that's, you're the first person I've ever heard that, that, that yeah. has that, that skill set. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool skill set. Well, thank you. All right. All right. So this has been awesome. I want to talk about the EP and then we should probably wrap up because, you know, we are just spending all the time and I love it. But hey, uh, we, yeah. we got to do a poop story. We got to do a poop story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, somebody come up yeah. with your best touring poop story. <laughs> I'm going to assume that, you know, the people who listen to this because they're all Safari fans haven't heard you guys. So give me the elevator pitch for the the EP and why they should listen other than because I keep telling everyone it's the best thing ever. <laughs> uh, Let's Throw a Party is the second EP from Samuel and the Friends. Our first EP, The Good Life, came out in 2018, um, which was a lot of songs about kind of coming to the realization that you were at the beginning of a new and exciting chapter. I wrote all of those songs in my first year in New York. Um, and kind of approach the writing and arrangement process with kind of a general audience acceptability kind of twist to it. I, we got a lot of musical theater fans. We got a lot of like pop fans and we got a lot of people who were interested in jazz vocals. And I think Let's Throw a Party, which came out two years later after so much has happened in each of our lives individually, so much has happened on a global scale and so much has happened for the band. Um, our five songs which are uh, not unlike the first EP, very much about embracing and loving yourself, taking your kind of journey into your own hands. But these stories are approached with a bit more maturity. We're talking about, um, I'm singing a lot about things that have happened in the past, and I don't think that I could have appropriately or fully told those stories the way they needed to be told until now. So this is kind of looking back at a lot of things, um, especially Lesser Party, Living Room Floor, Jackie Onassis. Um and it was a space for us to try new things. It was our first EP while we were on a record label. So we had some financial support and the ability to spend a great deal of time in the studio. Um, it's our first, it's an EP that features uh, a lot of interesting world hand percussion. Um, we have our first bilingual song. We have a song partially in Spanish featuring Seabass. Um, yeah, we're very proud of it. And I think it's a really good look at who we are as a band now you kind of get to know each of us as individual players and it's a good uh window into um our brand and where we're going in the future let's throw a party let's hit mary and the friends <laughs> yeah there's there's uh there's a lot of uh emotion in this this uh this ep and it's a big variety it's there's really a song for every there's really a song for everything in there. I mean, there's um, you know, there's uh, 
very lush, lush uh, arrangements, very lush uh, songwriting. Um, there's like a barn burner. There's like a waltz. You know, it's like, you name it. You name it. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So uh, tell me about the, the, the best by far vocalist on the album. And we know who I'm talking about here. And it's not Sammy Ray. And it's not the background vocals. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Come on, Seabass. Tell me you. about what you're doing. Please Please I well, it's funny because I was just hanging out with Sam the other day and we were talking about like what I do. And it's like, and I told her I, I rap this. sing. I rap sing. Okay. And then I told her I'm making a track where I'm rapping and rap singing. <laughs> but you said you said melodic rapping and i was melodic, like i was like my son that's what that was. is your that's your brand Seabast. melodic you rapping it. but um i think on this one it was definitely like rapping with a lot of like just a bit of swag to it just a bit um, of swag you cuteness. are dripping swag on that track boy i know it's Come so sensual. sensual i love it I- uh, um, we need the we need the we need the thug. I know how music works, <laughs> and even I was like, "Oh, he he really likes Sammy." All right, all right, like, <laughs> and then you came back in, and I was like, "Oh, and Sammy really likes him." I think we have a little Fleetwood Mac going on <laughs> right now. Snap! Hey. The the truth has come out. The truth has come out. My I, God! Yeah. yeah, will will you date me? Yes or no? I, Check the box. Or maybe. Or maybe. <laughs> or maybe. <laughs> Poppy. <laughs> Or definitely. <laughs> I will say, Sam, but, when you say Poppy, said, it, the way that you, you just, that one word pops out in that track, I'm like, oh, hey, girl, what's up? Like, that is, oh you God. put a <laughs> lot into that one word. I will say that. Creo sientes, pero no sé. I will say that, that, that Sam is very, very, very good at delivering the message of a song. Um, and this one is definitely one of like, you know, like the beginnings of like a relationship, especially with one with someone that you don't understand that doesn't even speak your language. Um, and seeing her like throughout the years deliver a song has taught me a lot on like more. It's more than just singing it. It's more than it's like it's like the facial expressions that you put into it. It yeah. is like the things that you see that aren't directly in front of you while you're saying it. You know, and so I I had a lot of fun doing this song and it's actually led to me doing my own little solo thing um, and trying to make my own music because of how much fun I have just trying to serve a song. You know, before I was just playing right, drums, right. you know, like trying to get all those polyrhythms <laughs> in, you know, <laughs> but now but now it's really it's 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 really turned into something more special it, i mean it's still don't get me wrong it's still about the course, problem always yeah but but <laughs> no but it, it i have learned so much about you know and in 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 the case of this song you know it needs to be sexy i want to be sexy in the song and i'm trying to find that within me that's you know? awesome Definitely through through the lessons I've learned through just playing and saying. That's really awesome. 
I really uh, love that. Yeah, man, that's really, really cool. And I'm glad that you've got uh, your own little project going now in case the uh, the actual drummer or one of the first uh, or second call uh, backup drummers call. come in. You know, <laughs> just in call. case. <laughs> what, what, when the first call sub finally yep. can make a game. Yep. You're golden. Yeah, yeah, at least I can, you know. Maybe you can open for Sammy Randall you know? Wednesday someday. <laughs> oh, my one God. Day. Uh, yeah. Maybe, 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 funny. maybe, you know, one day. So, all right, uh, give me, you got a poop story? For, for all the listeners, there, Seabest does not drink anything, any alcohol. It's not a diet. It's not like an allergic thing. It's just a dietary thing. So yeah. what we, we, were in, we were in Brazil, and Seabest had one caipirinha. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I made him another. And then I made him something when we got to the apartment. I gave oh you, I think God. I gave you, I think it was vodka. Something. I don't, I don't remember what it was. Seabass was hungover, hungover for like four <laughs> days after that. Yeah, so Seabass oh. so had a really intense evening, and we woke yeah. up. I, well, I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of the laundry machine, and we'll leave yeah. it at that. And then Seabass was hungover for like four days. I mean, I don't mind explaining the whole entire story. I don't know how detailed we want to get, because I can get very detailed, because I have... I can no always shame. cut if it's, it's not my yeah, story. Is... It's, not, it's not my story to tell. It's not what? my story to tell. That's on what you. It's I not said, my story to tell. I can always cut say, stuff if it's too detailed. So go ahead. <laughs> I get drunk for the first time in my life in Brazil. You know, first time in Brazil, hanging out with my friends. They're telling me it's a great time. I do have a good time. Okay. Um, but the next day, I wake up with shit all over my fucking boxers. <laughs> I could not. I could not. And I'm like, this is this is what they like to do. This is exactly what they like to do. <laughs> I wake up and I'm I'm like hungover, you know, and I barely got any sleep. I'm going to wash my freaking pants. And he shit himself. <laughs> and and I completely Amazing. shit myself. So like so Amazing. like n- no other animal has ever, you know, been more embarrassing than a sea bass. All right, y'all. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This thank you, John. Fun. Wow. This was so much fun. I learned so much. I have so much to look up and research now. But thank you for all of this, John. It was so wonderful to talk about the EP. And it was was so special to talk to you about some of your passions and get to share in a conversation that we don't normally get to share in. So thank you for that. This was so much fun. Good people making good music and caring about the world in the process? Yes, please. Sign me up. Uh, Y'all, you can check out Let's Throw a Party on Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your tunes. Uh, A lot of those places also have the Rossafari podcast, so, uh, you know, get a little two-for-one deal there. And, of course, you can check out the band at SammyRay.com. That's R-A-E. And don't worry, all these will be in the show notes if you don't want to remember them right now. Of course, the most important person for the entire podcast was Fruit the Frog, and you can check out that Instagram at Fruit the Frog. Sammy Ray's official uh, Instagram is at Sammy Ray Music. James is available online at JQ on Bass. And uh, Seabass can be found at Seabass Chiriboga. All right, y'all. Here come those lovely, lovely credits, which, if you say backwards, is Stydirk. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. 
You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.